Good morning, everybody. It's great to have you with us. Uh, I want to welcome parents and families and any of you who are new to Campus House. Uh, for this whole semester, we have been in First Peter, and uh, it's, been, it's an amazing letter. It's, it's theologically rich and really practical, and even though it was written about 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, it is still incredibly relevant for us. It is stretching for us. It's encouraging for us. And it was written, the context of First Peter, it was written to uh, the people in Asia Minor, this, this group, this cluster of scattered churches in what is modern-day Turkey. And Peter is writing into a context where they were being ostracized for their faith. They were... Uh, they were experiencing it from all angles, um, in the workplace and in the home and uh, experiencing alienation from their friends. And soon this will break out into, into all-out persecution and many will be put to death because of their faith. And so, so the, the letter of First Peter is to encourage the church that they have this living hope that is, uh, that is eternal and that is true and that God is faithful even in the middle of of that suffering and that persecution. That's the thread that runs throughout the entire letter. And so that is, that's what we've been in. Welcome. <laughs> Chapter 2, Peter says, If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so today, we're going to continue that thread in chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 19. So if you want to turn in there in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, I know Ethan just prayed, but can we, can we pray again uh, as we study the word today? God, thank you for your, your people. Thank you for, um, like Ethan said, a chance to, to worship you in this space. Thank you for uh, hungry hearts and, and minds to hear uh, what you, Spirit, are saying to the church today. Um, I pray that uh, you would give me words as I teach your word, that you would make up what I lack, because I lack a lot. <clears throat> Thank you for your promise that in our weakness, you are strong. So. We pray not just for your strength, but we pray for open hearts to what you would have for us. God, would you cut through uh, any noise today and any distractions and any places of defensiveness in order just to receive your good grace? Thank you that you love us and that you are always drawing us into a deeper sense of what you're up to in this world. And so... God, we, we want to be open to that. We pray all of that for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. I've got, I've got two don'ts and two do's, and then we're going to have a time of communion, and then I've got an epilogue for us, okay? So if you, if you like to know where we're going, that's where we're going. Here's the first don't. It says, don't be surprised. Don't, 
Don't be shocked at the fiery ordeal that you are going through. So Wednesday morning, I'm coming into this room. Every Wednesday morning, we have staff worship. And uh, I, I brought donuts from Gray House. We're going to celebrate and worship together. And I come over here, and there's a, a power switch that all of these, these light strands are connected to. You know, And so I do what I always do. I, I lean down to turn on that light switch. And then this fireball, like, like sparks out of the light switch. And it burns me, and it, it jolts me. And it just completely fries it. And so I'm like in a bit of shock. And I'm in Dave, Dave's over there pouring coffee on the electrical fire. And so we need to talk about that later. But um, it's all good. So I'm like putting water on my finger. And Leah says, we're going to urgent care. And so we went to urgent care. And I said, maybe you should drive. She said, that's a good idea. And so... Um, Get to urgent care, and, and so uh, two EKGs there, another EKG at the ER, irregular heart rhythm. Um, uh, it wasn't a good day. It wasn't a good day. Here's the thing about being shocked. Um, it's shocking. <laughs> the profundity of this place is amazing, right? No, it's unexpected. It's, it's completely unexpected. It's not like I said, oh, look, that, that power strip looks a little jank. I think I'll go see if I can get zapped so that I can lose three days of work and get a killer sermon illustration, you know? <laughs> Small pun intended. Um, so, no, you, you, it's unexpected. Getting shocked literally puts you into shock in that it paralyzes and it messes with your mind as well as your heart. And Peter reminds the chosen exiles living in Asia Minor that the suffering they were experiencing because they were followers of Jesus shouldn't shock them. It wasn't as if something strange was happening to them. In fact, Jesus had told his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And John picks up on that in his letter to the church in 1 John 3. He says, don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Don't be shocked. Suffering that is associated with Christ is not a surprise, considering that we are following after the one who was called the suffering servant. You can expect it. And Peter says that these kind of trials actually show the true nature of our faith. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come on you to test you. It's not like a uh, pass-fail, does this grade affect my GPA because I didn't really study for it. It's not that kind of test. This is, like, this is like being forged in the fire. This is revealing the strength and the consistency and the quality of the metal. Uh, Justin is our youngest, and for his birthday, I took him to Louisville. Um, I have a friend that does all kinds of cool stuff, including uh, making awesome knives. And so... Oh, we spent the day with my friend Rick, and Justin got to design that knife, and he got to, to cut it out. And, but Rick put it through the forge. And here's the deal. This is uh, a knife. 
the, all the design on there is because it's, a, it's actually a rasp that they use at Churchill Downs for horse hooves. Isn't that cool? Some of the strongest metal that you can use in a knife it makes a great knife, but it has to be put into 1,500 degrees to let this chemical reaction happen that burns away anything that uh, would, would uh, keep it from being solidified and hardened to be an effective knife. And so the test afterwards is you, you beat it on, on the table and look for cracks. See, forging does the same thing that testing does in our lives. If you're in community groups, we've been in the Gospel of John. Suffering is like a forge that reveals who we really are and what we really believe. It's a test. In John 6, Jesus is with um, his disciples and the crowds are there. He's teaching them and they're hungry. And so this is the, the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus, uh, when he looked up and saw the great crowd coming to him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test them, for he already had had in his mind what he was going to do. In the, in the study notes, Rick wrote, uh, Jesus knows what is in our hearts, but through the testing we get to see what is truly in our hearts. Deuteronomy 13 says, uh, the purpose of testing is to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Testing, suffering is a forge that reveals what we really believe. Peter said this back in chapter 1, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials, in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. But verse 13, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So don't be surprised, but do rejoice. Throughout the, the letter, Peter keeps giving us this, this true north as we navigate through this confusion, this landscape of, of, of confusion and sometimes oppression and filled with temptations and hopelessness in the middle of suffering. In a world where often the remedy for any kind of suffering is to numb or to escape. Peter keeps bringing us back to, to focus our eyes and our hearts on the living hope of Christ, who in fact suffered for us. In this sense, the suffering and rejection and death that Jesus went through frees us not only from the tyranny and hopelessness of our own sin. But it also changes our perspective on what it means to suffer. If we are rejected and ridiculed for doing good, then Peter says we are simply being treated how Jesus was treated. 
In a sense, we become partners in his suffering, in what he experienced for us to redeem us and to give us hope. That's why Peter says that there is both joy and suffering. There is both blessing and persecution, that both of those things exist together in very, very real and at the same time. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus put it this way, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, blessed are you, friends, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For that's the same way that they persecuted some, it's time, it is time. <laughs> In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'll, I'll, I'll hurry up. Okay. Um, no, no, no. Blessing in the middle of suffering comes because the Holy Spirit is present. This is about his strength and confidence and peace that comes through his presence. So he says rejoice. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, then you're blessed. Praise God that you, he says, bear that name. Your life has been tattooed with the name of Christ. <laughs> Rejoice because you've been found out. You've been recognized. Your cover has been blown. People see your true identity. The apostles rejoice in Acts 5 because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Peter goes on, verse 15, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So don't, don't be surprised, but rejoice. And then he says, don't be ashamed. The opposite of suffering for the name of Jesus would be suffering for our own sin, because of our own sin. That we acted in a way that was opposed to God's will. And in that case, suffering is just kind of getting what we deserve, right? The consequences for our, our crime or our sin. And he lays it out. He says, if you suffer as, uh, for being a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal. But then he says, even as a meddler, even as a someone who is, is being nosy and a busybody and tactless and divisive and lacks discretion or is the morality police for all of their friends. So even if, if you suffer for that, that is completely different from suffering for the name of Jesus. There's a kind of suffering that is the consequence of our sin and stupidity and that is shameful. And so we suffer physically or embarrassment or emotionally because we uh, made bad decisions. But suffering as a Christian also has consequences, but they're different. Consequences of, of loving people who are hard to love. Consequences of speaking truth when it's not convenient or letting God take you places that aren't comfortable or even safe. 
So there is a, a suffering that is associated with, with sin, sin and shame and, and stupidity. And sometimes what we call suffering and what we call persecution really is a result of our own uh, meddling, our own tactlessness. So here, here's, a, here's a sidebar. The gospel is offensive in its own right because the gospel says that you can't do it gospel says that you need a savior and that doesn't go over well in a culture of self-sufficiency the gospel is really clear that it is in itself offensive i mean paul talks about he says it's a stumbling block it's foolishness right but as believers and followers of jesus we don't need to add to the offensiveness ingrained in the gospel with our own offensiveness we don't need to add to uh, put up barriers between our friends and, and the good news of Jesus out of our own stupidity. And he says if we suffer consequences of suffering because of that, that is not the same as suffering for the name of Jesus. Sidebar over. Okay, you with me? You good? All right. Suffering because of association with Jesus, humbly trying to live in a way that is tied to his holiness and to his hopefulness. There's nothing to be ashamed about. In fact, God honors and blesses that. Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So don't be ashamed, but, but do, do trust Trust God in the middle of this. And that's the last part of the passage in verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So don't be ashamed, but do trust. Peter's not saying that your salvation is on shaky ground, and it's the opposite. We have, we have confidence in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But we have confidence, but let's not get complacent. We're not exempt from God's justice because Romans 14 says that we all will stand before the judgment seat of God, but we have assurance. We have confidence that Jesus suffered and he died to redeem and restore us. We are holy and righteous in his sight. And because of that, when we find ourselves suffering for the name of Jesus in the midst of the forge, we can trust him completely. We can continue to do good, he says, to reflect Jesus. And it's amazing that that in itself becomes and bears witness to Jesus at work in us. Peter, earlier in the letter, says, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they want to accuse you, they can't. He says, Suffering in accordance with God's will. Just don't confuse that. It's not that God is causing our suffering, but that if we suffer in, as we live for Jesus, if we suffer because of his name, 
we are suffering in alignment of the way of his kingdom. God doesn't waste anything. But suffering often brings up a lot of questions. Paul Tripp has, his, has a lot of books, but I'm reading uh, his book on suffering. And uh, he says this. He says, he talks about this letter that Peter wrote. And he said, Peter is doing more than comforting the church. He is shaping their theology. He knows that when we suffer, we are susceptible to the lies that the enemy whispers in our ears. And so, so these are some of the lies that he whispers. See if you can relate to any of these. In the middle of your suffering, do you ever hear, where is God now? Why have you been singled out? Perhaps God does have favorites. Why isn't God listening to your prayers? Why do others have it so much easier than you? Maybe God doesn't love you after all. When, when things are going well, we assume that God knows what he's doing, but when life hits the fan, we start to have questions. In all kinds of, of suffering, we're, we're tempted to uh, question his character and his goodness and his love. Uh, again, from, from community groups. When you don't get the job, or when your relationship fails, or your parents divorce, or your friends turn on you, or you lose your health, or you get zapped with 110 volts, we ask, why, God? But he's asking a question as well. He's asking, will you? Will you trust and value me more than you do those things that you thought would bring you life. When we're in the middle of suffering, it is so easy to compare ourselves to others who seemingly are not, right? When you're in the middle of, of, of really intense pain and suffering, it's like everyone else has got it together and no one is going through what you're going through. And that's been the case all along. Psalm 37, uh, the psalmist says, I was tempted to be envious of pagans whose lives are seemingly going swimmingly when here I am trying to follow after God in the middle of deep pain and suffering. It's like, why is that happening to me when I have laid it all on the line for you, God? There, there's a Christian version of karma that says if I'm going to church and if I'm reading my Bible and if I'm not sleeping around and if I'm not getting plastered on weekends, then things should go well for me. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm putting in the time and if I'm putting in the efforts, then God owes me that life should go well. And that's demandingness. And there's a difference between demandingness and expectation, friends. Expectation says this. Jesus comes to you and he looks you in the eyes and he says, friend, in this world you will have trouble. I guarantee it. But I also guarantee 
that I will never leave you or forsake you. I also guarantee to overcome whatever is overcoming you to the degree that I, in my death, put death to death. So we're blessed. And God shows up in mind-blowing ways beyond what we could possibly ask or imagine. But we're also called to suffer for the name of Jesus. Romans 15 says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace ongoingly as you trust him so that you may overflow. Well, all of that, I want to lead us into communion. If you are helping pass out communion today, that's your cue. There is this both and nature of expectation. It's both that suffering is a normal part the normative part of the Christian life, and that we have an eternal living hope that will not disappoint. And we have a Savior who, because of his suffering, has secured that living hope. Lifting suffering out of the smallness of bitterness and of envy and despair and fear and opening it up into the wide expanse of God's promises and blessing and presence and joy and even your spiritual growth. And all of it points to the suffering of Jesus himself. Chapter 3, 18 Christ also suffered once for sins and the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. His suffering saves us. And when we share in his sufferings, we're not contributing, contributing to what he did. That's impossible. But in following in his steps, our suffering points to the reality of his once and for all death and resurrection. And in suffering and persecution, Tim Mackey says, it's a strange gift offering a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus through a steadfast hope that is anchored and fueled by his return. Hmm. Is it worth it? What if we turn that question around to Jesus? Was it worth it? Undeniably, he would say, absolutely. Absolutely. So, friends, we have a confidence. Confidence that's not rooted in your ability to get it right. Confidence that's not rooted in your intellect, as awesome as that might be. Confidence is, that is not dependent on whether things go well or not. Because the promise is, at some point, they probably won't. 
But there is a pervasive and tenacious joy and peace and hope and assurance and confidence that is not wishful thinking and not whistling in the dark, but is anchored and rooted in the cross of Christ. And that's why we're here. So let me pray and then we'll pass out communion. And then if you could hold it today and we'll take it together in just a bit. Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you for being the suffering servant, for blowing the, the minds of the religious elites who were all about power and control, and that you came to wash feet and you came to die a sinner's death even though you had no sin. Thank you. Jesus, that your suffering frees us to live, that your suffering brings us living hope. So whatever suffering we endure in your name, we can do that in pure joy, not only for eternal inheritance, but for present reality of the blessing and the presence and the power and the comfort of your Holy Spirit. So we take communion, not only in recognition and remembrance, but in celebration of the suffering servant. In Christ, amen. So now the epilogue. Don't be surprised, but do rejoice when you suffer for the name of Jesus. Don't be ashamed, but do trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God and his hope in the midst of suffering. I've wrestled over the past few weeks between how we read this passage here and now and how Christians around the world would read it differently. And I talked to my friend David yesterday, who is a, he's a pastor at Covenant Church here in town. And I... I just said, David, I, I, I got to run this by you because I'm just, I've, I've been wrestling with it and it's, uh, I just can't land. And so it's like, how do, how do I preach? Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial that you are going through as if something strange is happening to you. How, how, do, I, how do I preach that to, um, to a bunch of Purdue students in West Lafayette and their awesome parents and their families, uh, acknowledging that we do suffer because of our faith in Jesus, that inevitably um, we experience uh, people just not getting it and, and people uh, ostracizing or, or being left out or being uh, even, even publicly ridiculed or humiliated. We experience that. I talk to people every week that experience that on this campus. But how do I set that right beside uh, over 200 million Christians around the world that experience this passage in a much different way? Who persecution for them looks like not just intimidation, but persecution and and even death. So how, how, do I, how do I come at that 
really giving weight to both scenarios. And he listened to me vent for a while, and he said, you know what comes to mind is this passage in Acts 17. And in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, and he is at the Oropagus, and he is he's talking to the philosophers and the academics of, of Greece in Athens. And there's this verse in verse 26. He says, from one man he made, God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. In other words, I think we engage God in his word and the world from our particular vantage point. Within our context. While keeping our hearts and our minds open and in tune with what this means for believers in parts of the other world, I think it's a both and deal. And when we compare the suffering that we go through because of our faith in Jesus to the suffering that other Christians go through in the vast majority of the world, comparing becomes dangerous because that can lead to uh, unuseful guilt and shame or just complacency. There's a different way. There's a both and way. Let me illustrate that with another context. Uh, my friend Pete Coco, awesome name, Pete Coco. Um, he, until recently, was a campus minister at Illinois State. And he, during his time there, he actually established five campus ministries in the Philippines and lived in the Philippines for a couple of years. And so a couple of years ago, I got to go with Pete over to visit his old digs. In Baguio City, we uh, met with the different campus ministers, ministries, but he showed me an apartment building where he and his wife had lived. This is pre-kids, and they, uh, they lived in this little, just, just this dumpy, one-room electricity part of the time, uh, running water just into like a, a bucket for showers and cooking. And uh, that's, that's how they lived for over like a year and a half to two years. So I've been to his house in Bloomington Normal. And his house in Bloomington Normal, it's, it's like a 1970s, you know, kind of sprawling ranch. And it's, this, it's modest, but it's big. And uh, it, it needs to be big because he has five kids. They adopted a couple kids from Ethiopia, and, and they, uh, they have uh, college students in their house all the time. So I, we were talking. It's like, Pete, how do you, how do you think about this, this nice big house when your experience in the Philippines and their ongoing experience in the campus minister who is in Baguio City is very, very different? And he said a couple of things I think are really helpful. He said, one, if I'm not wrestling with that, something's amiss. Like, if I, if I never think about that, about them, about there, then I am prone toward complacency and not appreciation. But if I can think about individual context 
And, and what is, uh, what's it mean to be content? And what does it mean to be on mission? And what does it mean to be attentive to what God is doing where I am? That is super helpful. Not just in how we think about our stuff, but also how we think about this whole concept of suffering and persecution for the name of Jesus. And so here's, the, here's how I want to translate that. In other words, we engage, uh, I already said that, what, <laughs> two questions. What is the context where you live this out? Second question, where, has, where God has put you, what does it mean for you to be a peculiar people, a, a distinctive person of Jesus in the midst of whatever forms of suffering come with that context. Does that make sense? Even in the first century, persecution wasn't static. It wasn't the same everywhere at all times. There was an elevation to it, and there were degrees to it in various places. Then and now, the temperature doesn't rise in the same way for everyone. And what Peter is saying is that when the temperature does rise, don't get shocked about that because that is to be expected if you are a follower of Jesus. It looks different in West Lafayette, though, than it does in China or Nigeria or Iran. Different context brings a different form of attack from the enemy. It brings a different kind of question being asked, and it brings a different plan of action to be taken. So I'm going to take our last three or four minutes just to talk about that. There's a different form of attack from the enemy. So I'm going to talk about there, and then talk about here. There, the Guardian, UK, said some assessments claim that as many as 200 million Christians around the world face some degree of intimidation, restriction, discrimination, prison, or outright persecution for being a follower of Jesus. Friends, that's, it's one in 10 Christians around the world. From in North Korea, between 50,000 and 70,000 Christians are presently, as far as they know, in labor camps where North Korean officials are using torture in their killing Christians. Documented incidents include being hung on a cross over a fire, being crushed with a steamroller, being herded off bridges, and being trampled underfoot. Just three years ago in Kenya, 148 Christians were attacked on a college campus and killed. Over the last decade, hundreds have been killed in Egypt. Hundreds of Christians have been killed. And just, this, just two days ago, three days ago, a bus was attacked full of Christians. And seven to 13 Christians, I don't know, I've heard different things, were killed and 30 wounded. In Nigeria, an estimated 6,000 Christians have been killed already this year. Earlier this year, Newsweek published that the persecution and genocide of, of Christians across the world is worse today than any time in history. In China, a group called the China Aid documented that there has been persecution just this last year against 1,265 churches and over 223,000 people, and that is up five times over the previous year. 
The Pew Research Center states that Christians face harassment in 102 countries. That's there. What about here? What about us in America? I think part of my wrestling is that I, I need to be shocked and surprised by those numbers because on any given day, I don't think about it. I, I, I need to be in tune with that. But we also need to realize that we're called to suffer here for the name of Christ. And sometimes that's, that's obvious. You're ridiculed in, in class by a professor. You're called out. A lot of you live in, in housing situations, fraternities, sororities, co-ops, residence halls, or with unbelieving uh, roommates that every day is a, is a struggle to, to live your faith. There's a, a cost of not cheating on a project when others were. There's the cost of being essentially disowned by family. I've had a number of those conversations over the years as well. Losing a job for being ethical. So those are more obvious ways that, that at Purdue or in Indiana or in the States that, that we might suffer for the name of Jesus. There are other ways that aren't as obvious. We can be blinded by the attack of the enemy in really subtle ways in that we drift into complacency. We are lured away from our passion and vibrancy of, for Jesus. My friend David said this. He said, we're much more likely to be lulled to sleep than nailed to a cross. So it's a different kind of attack, right? There are also different questions for 200 plus million Christians around the world, the question that is so relevant is this. Are you willing to die for your faith in Jesus Christ? For us, it's a different question. Are you willing to live out your faith in Jesus Christ? Sometimes I think about the first question, and what would I do if I was there, right? Or if there was here, and someone asked me to de denounce my faith in Jesus. And I've got these romantic ideas almost, so, you know, these heroic ideas. It's like I would stand when everyone else sat. Yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Put me in the fire. Likely that's not going to happen. What is going to happen is the second question. Am I willing to live distinctively for the name and the cause and the glory of Jesus? That's a different question. What's your allegiance to, look, to Jesus look like? And then thirdly, the plan of action. And I would invite us to four or five things to become informed and to post 
use social media to post what is going on in the world and to support organizations that are actually um, ministering to the persecuted church and to advocate for them and to pray. I, I was reading uh, a bit from uh, an author named Nick Ripkin. He wrote The Insanity of God. And I just want to share two or three quotes for you as we close. He said, about 70% of those who practice their faith live in environments of persecution. Persecution is described as normal Christianity for much of the world. He says that the Christians he met, and he interviewed over 700 persecuted Christians for this book, he said they were suffering for two simple reasons. They, choose, they chose to be a follower of Jesus, and they chose to not keep silent about his resurrection. Listen to this, friends. What we're trying to get the Western church to look at as we're talking to about people who have chosen to follow Christ and to witness to the utter joy and certainty of the resurrection one of the men I interviewed, a man who had followed his father into prison and torture, looked at me and said, Nick, I don't, I don't, oh, no, let me read this right. He said, Nick, don't you give up in freedom what we never give up in persecution. Oh, that's good. That's our witness to the resurrection of Jesus. American Christians must understand that there is no such thing as the globally persecuted church and the free church. There is just one church, and that church belongs to Jesus, and it is always and at the same time both persecuted and free. When our brothers and sisters are suffering and persecuted for their faith, we are to walk with them and pray with them. And at the same time, they, this one, this, listen to this, at the same time, they celebrate the fact that we live in a place where we are free to share our faith. They're not resentful. They celebrate the fact that we live in a place where we can gather here and no one's coming in the doors. No guilt, no shame. Just practicing some curiosity with the Holy Spirit. What does it look like to both be aware and advocating and praying for that, for their and to be aware and bold and moving in step with the Spirit here. We are both and people, not either or people. I want to close just giving us a couple minutes to pray, okay? So would you, would you stand and pray? Then we're going to sing one more song and be done. Pray for our, our context here. In Acts chapter 4, there's this really cool passage where James and, I'm sorry, John and Peter are in prison, and they, they, they're in prison because of Jesus, and then they get released, and they go to the church. that are gathered. The church has been praying for them, and the church is, is so happy to see them, and they pray and they don't pray for protection. They pray for boldness, that the gospel will go out, right? So can we, can we have that kind of prayer for Christians on this campus and Christians in this city, in whatever city that you came from today?